we've now come up to the time of the preached word. We've been in this series called This We Believe for the last couple of weeks. And this series is about exploring our beliefs, our statement of faith. A couple of weeks ago, we began this series by talking about we believe in God the Father. And we talked about the characteristics and attributes of God the Father and how he exists. We said our God is real. And then on last week, we said we believe in the Bible, the word of God. God has spoken. He has revealed himself to his people. And in response, we are to know him, love him, worship him, believe the word, and obey the word. This week, we want to look at the human condition. I believe all of mankind in their heart of hearts have the same questions. All of us want to know, who am I? Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why are we here and where are we going? That's the question of mankind. And today I want to spend some time answering these questions for us from the word of God. Before we go there, let's look together at our statement of faith concerning the human condition. It says, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature, and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. And it is only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ that we can be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Where did we come from? That's the first question I want to look at. And so we want to first talk about the origin of man. And everything that we talk about today is going to be centered in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 reads like this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Look with me first of all, and as we discuss the human condition, look with me first of all at the creation of the image. The creation of the image. And here's, here is the main thought 
of today's sermon. To be human is to be made in the image of God. To be human is to be made in the image of God. The image of God is the distinguishing mark of humans from all creation. What sets mankind apart from all creation is that we have been created in the image of God. And this is an honor and a privilege that has been bestowed upon us by our creator. But we need to ask ourselves this question. What then is the image of God? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Let me share with you a few thoughts concerning this. To be made in the image of God, first of all, means that we are a reliant being. A reliant being. By reliant, I mean that we are dependent beings. We we are dependent in that we don't exist on our own. We are not self-existent. Our existence depends on someone else. And scripture goes out of its way. Even in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, 17 times it identifies God as the creator. But we can look even in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 to see that it is God who, is cre- who has created us. Look, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here it is. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Bible answers the question, where did I come from very clearly? We originate from God. And since we are reliant, dependent, created beings, that means that we are not the masters of our own fate. God is. We owe our existence to God and nothing else. And let me say that I have to stop and parenthetically argue that our existence is not the result of evolution. Evolutionists argue that the, that the first life generated, generated spontaneously from non-living chemicals without intelligent intervention. In other words, the evolutionists would contend that all living creatures have developed through natural processes from a first living cell. Furthermore, the evolutionists argue that the only explanation for all the changes that occur in living organisms is through mutations accumulating over long periods of time with the good ones being preserved by natural selection. So here's the formula for evolution. Mutations plus natural selections plus time equals evolution. The evolutionist argues that mutations plus natural selection plus time equals evolution. One of the problems with the theory of evolution is that it provides no answer for the cause of the first living cell. The problem with evolutions, even in its own formula, is who caused the mutations? 
Who or what did the natural selection? Who or what caused and created the time? And beloved, to not find the cause of something is simply bad science. This idea of spontaneous generation of life is actually believed by faith. (laughs) Therefore, evolution is simply secular religion masquerading as science. We know that the first cause of everything is God. It is God who created the heavens, the earth, and every living being. He did it all by his spoken word. What we hear over and over again in Genesis 1 is, and God said. All he had to do was speak a word and things came into existence. So then we we don't believe that the origin of man is, is, is a random act of chance by way of natural selection. No, 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 no. We believe that the origin of man is the intentional, miraculous, mysterious work of God. So to be made in the image of God, beloved, is to be a reliant being. We are dependent on God. We are created by God. So to be in the image of God is first of all to be a reliant being. But to be in the image of God is also to be a ruling being. A ruling being. Let me give you some cultural context. In the ancient Near East, images, statues, were often erected of a king in order to assert and represent his rule over a people and a place. A king would have a statue created and have it uh, uh, put in place to let them know I'm the one in power. I'm the one in authority. I am the one who's in control. In like manner, man images God as he rules on God's behalf. We can see this idea even here in our text. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's rule, authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We can see this idea of ruling in in, in our call to worship text, Psalm number eight, verses four through six. Here's what the psalmist says. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower The King James says a little lower than the angels. The ESV says a little lower than the heavenly beings. The Hebrew text says a little lower than Elohim. Mankind is actually a little lower than God. And you have crowned mankind with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Take note of the terminology of man being crowned with glory and honor. You crown royalty. To have dominion is to have authority or ruling power. So man, created in the image of God, is one who rules on God's behalf over his created order. So to be An image bearer is to be a reliant being, it is to be a ruling being, but it's also to be a relational being. 
a relational being. Look at the text, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. It says, notice that it says, God says, let us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. If God is speaking and he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, question, who are you talking to? He's talking to himself. If God is speaking to himself in the plural, then he must be speaking to himself as Trinity. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are having a conversation with themselves. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, every member of the Trinity is involved in creation. Each member of the Godhead is a person. And they've lived in, they've lived in perfect relationship with one another. If man is created in the image of God and in the likeness of God, we too must be relational beings. Beloved, you have been created for relationship. And I would argue that this relational nature of humanity has both a vertical and horizontal dimension to it. Vertically, we are created to relate first and primarily to God. We, we get this in that not only are we created in God's image, but we also are created in his likeness. Look, to be created in the likeness of God is to be like God and that we originate from him. Let me see if I can make it a little bit clearer. I have two biological children. Both Brandon Jr. and Brianna have been born or birthed in my likeness. <laughs> when, when Brandon Jr. Was, uh, 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 was much younger, he was much more handsome because he looked like his daddy. My, my daughter to this day, my wife will say that my daughter is my twin. They are both in my likeness. They share my DNA, my characteristics. They are in my likeness. In like manner, to be created in the likeness of God is to be designated a son or daughter of God because we are in his likeness. Humanity then is to relate to God as a son or daughter relates to their father. So as relational beings, we first ought to relate to God through knowledge, love, devotion, and obedience. That's the vertical dimension. Horizontally, we are created to exist in community, just like God exists in triune community. We see this principle of living in community from Scripture because in the very next chapter, God speaks the first not good of creation when he says it's not good for man to be alone. By the way, when God says that it's not good for man to be alone, being alone is not the same thing as being single. He never said it's not, it's not good to be single. He said it's not good to be alone. You can be single, saved, and satisfied. You don't believe it? Come here, Jesus. Did you ever get married? Nope. 
But were you satisfied? Yes. Because he had community. He had God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as man, he had disciples. He had core. And even in his disciples, he had an inner core of Peter, James, and John. There was community. So you can be single and satisfied. Now, if you're single and unsatisfied, that may mean that you don't have the gift of singleness. So, God says it's not good for man to be alone. So, to be, to be made in the image of God is to be a relational being. Beloved, by nature, we crave community. If community is natural, then isolation is unnatural. We need to get this in the church. If community is natural, then isolation is unnatural. Beloved, it can be argued that one of the worst punishments in the world is solitary confinement. Why? Because it is contrary to human nature to be confined alone. It goes against how we have been created in the image of God. Another example, one condition that plagues our world today is that of loneliness. It is both sad and tragic that we are the most connected generation and at the same time the loneliest generation. This condition of loneliness is rampant around the world. Beloved, we were not created to thrive alone. Because we have been created in the image of God, we are relational beings. Not only does it mean to be reliant, ruling, and relational, but to be created in the image of God also means to be responsible. We are responsible beings as image bearers. As creatures, we are responsible and accountable to our creator. To be human is to be responsible. Responsible for what? Look at our text, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 says, we are to rule and have dominion over the earth. That's what we're responsible for, ruling and dominion. Now, let me make sure we understand that this, this uh, 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 ruling and dominion, that doesn't mean we have ultimate authority. We have delegated authority. Our authority derives from our creator. So then we are responsible for stewarding God's creation. We see the outworking of this idea of ruling and having dominion, even in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it, where it reveals that God put Adam in the garden of Eden, and he told Adam to work it and keep it. That's what ruling and dominion looks like over God's creation. We see further evidence of Adam's rule and dominion in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, which says, Now, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Adam naming living beings was evidence of his authority and rule over them. So Adam was a responsible steward of God's creation. And beloved, in like manner, we too are responsible stewards of God's creation. And we do this through the arts, sciences, outdoor work, and the like. So we are image bearers. We have been created in the image of God. But there's something that happens to this image. To understand the current condition of humanity, we have to look at a life-altering event that affects every human being. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God tells Adam, he says, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice that God gives the first humans Mostly freedom, an abundance of freedom. They have one restriction, one law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe there are a couple of reasons that the Lord put this tree, this forbidden tree in the garden. First, I think he put it there to remind Adam and Eve that they are not king of kings. The tree reminds them that it is God, that the God who created them is Lord. He is over them and they are under him and subject to him. Secondly, I think the tree is there as a test of their loyalty and obedience. Will they submit to their king or will they rebel against their king? This is the ultimate test. So then we get to Genesis chapter 3. A new character arrives on the scene. We are introduced to a serpent that is said to be more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord made. And this serpent speaks to the woman, Eve, asking, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The, the woman responds, that God's, and God says, that God says that they could eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden except the one in the middle of the garden. The serpent's response to her in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the tactics, the strategy of Satan. They're important because this is what he uses the same old tricks, beloved. First of all, he casts doubt on the word of God. First thing he says is, did God actually say? That's what he does. He uses the same strategy even on Jesus Christ, the word of God in the wilderness. He misconstrues and misuses the word of God. The other problem of Adam and Eve is that they yield to temptation of the serpent telling them that they will be like God 
when they were already created in his image and likeness. Notice what Satan does here. Not only does he cast doubt on the word of God, but he also forces them to doubt the goodness of God. That's what happens when he says, God knows that when you eat of the tree, you will be like him. It, 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 it's as if Satan is telling them God is not good because he's withholding something from you that would be good to you. And then notice what Satan does. He casts, he magnifies the one restriction that God places on them. And beloved, he's still doing the same thing. People today are not Christians because they think there's too many rules. God has given us freedom. One of the characteristics or attributes of God is freedom. And that characteristic he has shared, it's a communicable attribute, meaning that he shares that with humanity. God is actually more about our freedom than he is restricting us. But Satan wants to magnify the restriction. And now he, he makes them doubt that God is withholding something from them. So now the story becomes tragic. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says, The woman took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it. And gave it to her husband who was with her. Beloved, this was an act of cosmic treason against the king of the universe. This is the origin of sin. The image that was good has now been distorted. So that's the second thing we see when we study the human condition is the distortion of the image. The origin of sin happens in the garden when Adam and Eve voluntarily choose to disobey God's word. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God. John Stott, a 20th century pastor, preacher, and theologian says this about sin. He says, sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. That's the origin of sin. But then, I think to understand the human condition, not only should we study the origin of sin, but we need to see the outcome of sin, the result of sin. This image is now distorted, and this distorted image and sin nature is passed to every child of Adam We are sinners by nature.
We are sinners by nature. That's the result of sin. Every cute, cuddly baby is a sinner. Adam acting as the federal head of the human race now imputes or confers his sin nature on every human being that exists. I didn't make that up. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We were all united with Adam. We are all in Adam and thus are sinners. In verse 19 of Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The Apostle Paul clearly believed in the inheritance sin nature. So, we see the distortion of the, the of, of the image and sin coming into the world. And as a result, we are totally depraved. That word depraved means corrupt. By totally... By total depravity, we mean every part of our being, mind, body, soul, will, emotions, conscience, intellect, has been affected by sin. Total depravity simply means that there is no part of the human being that is untainted by sin. Here's how scripture depicts the total depravity of humanity in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. Just listen. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. Though in the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, this is the bleakest of bleak depictions of mankind. Because we are totally depraved, we are also totally unable to rescue ourselves from our sinful condition. There is nothing we can do to merit the favor of God. We are unable to do anything to save ourselves. It is against our sinful human nature to submit to God. The sinner, by definition, is a rebel against God. The sinner's one aim is to please and satisfy himself. Another outcome or result of sin, we are now under God's wrath. What? The preacher talking about the wrath of God? Y'all, it's in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes these words. He says, and by nature, you are children of wrath. Question for the audience, the five of y'all that are in here. 
What is the wrath of God? You don't have to answer. I'm going to answer it for you. Jesus gives us a couple pictures of the wrath of God. In Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 48, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes, here it is, be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus makes it clear here that the wrath of God leads to an eternal destiny in a place called hell. And it is a place of unending torment. Because that's what he means by when he says the worm does not die. He says that this fire is unquenchable. It, 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 it never goes out. In Luke 16, Jesus gives us another picture of the wrath of God. He tells a parable about a, a rich man who lacked compassion for a poor man named Lazarus who, who would lay at this rich man's gate daily. Jesus says in this parable that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He says the rich man died, was buried, but his soul went to Hades. And there in Hades, or hell, he was in torment and in anguish in the flame. Notice that those in hell are conscience, are conscientious of their torment. They are fully aware of their torment and they can physically feel their punishment. Jesus was not the only one who believed in the wrath of God, so did the Apostle Paul. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he says that the wrath of God will be seen on that day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Here it is. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Last one. In Revelation 20, we learn that there's going to be a white throne judgment. And at the throne, the divine judge will open up the book of life and every person will be judged according to what they have done. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 and 15 says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There's the wrath of God. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was thrown in the lake of fire. Beloved, the wrath of God is real. And, and, and there will be some who will say, how dare this preacher talk about the wrath of God? We need to be talking about God's grace and God's love. Well, those things are not what they really are unless we understand our sinfulness and the punishment we deserve for God's sin. Beloved, on last week, we said we believe in the Bible, and we said that all Scripture is inspired. Guess what? All those verses that talk about the wrath of God are the words of God. 
And I have a duty to preach the full counsel of Scripture. Beloved, the gospel is meaningless unless we understand the wrath of God. So if we are going to be a gospel-centered church, we have to understand that the only reason there is good news is because of the bad news. And so this is the current human condition. We all are condemned and under the wrath of God. question is there any hope for humanity are we all just on a one way trip to hell without hope can this image ever be restored and renewed we have said because of Adam and because we were in Adam we are all in a tragic and bleak situation because of Adam we are all sinners who stand condemned under the wrath of God and beloved this ought to break our hearts if this were the end of the story we would be a people most hopeless and to be most pitied But there's good news, beloved. There's a second Adam. The second Adam was faithful. The second Adam is the image of the invisible God. The second Adam never yielded to temptation. This second Adam is without sin. This second Adam is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This second Adam is our only hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, in the following verse, it says this, Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Oh, praise the name of our Lord. Beloved, we do have hope. This image, this distorted image will be renewed. But the question that somebody may be asking right now, who is this second Adam? And I proclaim to you today the second Adam is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus took on the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross who, when he was crucified for our sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we didn't have to experience the wrath of God. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be justified. We can be declared not guilty by the judge. Here's what Romans chapter 5 verse 8 through 9 says, but God ha, shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Beloved, those who trust in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, for forgiveness of sins are rescued from the penalty of sin, the very wrath of God. Preacher, why are you so excited right now? Because I know without a doubt that I am saved, saved, saved. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 gives us this assurance. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The good news is that right now, guess what? The image of God is being renewed in us. That's what we call sanctification. Let me give you a few verses and then I'm out of here. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's happening right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Beloved, our hope is that when we see our Savior, we will be just like him. Oh, I want to see him. Look upon his face. There to sing forever of his amazing grace. Beloved, this image, the image of God, will one day be completely renewed. We will look like our Savior. Beloved, God has a plan. There is hope for humanity. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have created us in your image. And you have created us as reliant, responsible, relational beings who represent you here on the earth to rule on your behalf and to have dominion. So God, give us a heart of a steward over all of your creation. God, help us to care about things such as Pollution and littering and, dare I say, global warming. Because you have called us to be stewards over all of your creation. Forgive us as Christians for being such poor stewards of your creation. God, help us to affirm the dignity of our fellow man. And God, we thank you that the image that has been distorted because of sin is now being renewed to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So God, Holy Spirit, 
Help us to reflect the image of God in the world. Help us to bear the image faithfully. We ask all these things in Christ's name.